Hi there, welcome to Dear Authentic Conversations with Megan and Ryan. Uh, as a bit of a teaser for this episode, I'm going to start off playing you um, the moment when Ryan and I realize that we are going to have to actually pay attention to what we say about other people online, and you can see our decision making in action. If you're curious about what we are making a decision about, please stay tuned and listen to the rest of this episode. Should have said his last name. Oh yeah, you can't say his last name. You're right. Name. Let me go back. Um, so I um, okay. Let's. I've even been nervous about using his first name. Is that okay? Well, it's not like it's it's not like it's stuff he didn't do. Okay. And this is why, as you're listening to the first part of the podcast, there will be uh, deletions that happen. It's not your sound. It's me getting rid of someone's name. Um, and I also then start calling him John McDonald, which is funny for Canadians. And here you go, Authentic Conversations. Hi there, welcome to Authentic Conversations with Megan Bulla and Ryan Derby Talbot. And Theory the dog is in the house. Um, we, last time, Ryan, or I asked Ryan three ideas that were important to him or something. Yeah, you asked me, I think three, three, the books that I was reading. Did I ask the books? I can't remember. Oh. We, we've had, a, we've had, had several, a <laughs> we've had several podcasts that we ended up the first time not, didn't record and then we had another one that we just didn't, didn't work out. So we're, try something new. The last one was boring for us while we were talking, so we decided that it would be boring for you while you were listening. Um, it also had a theory breathing loudly throughout it, so um, we're hoping to avoid that by moving him. However, he's just started breathing loudly again. <laughs> All right. Never work with children or animals. Okay, so Dr. Derby Talbot is driving this well, podcast. Right, so I think it's podcast called Authentic Conversations, um, and really what we use it for is a space to talk meaningfully about things, and I, th I like to think of the phrase authentic conversations as it relates to one of Heidegger's distinctions um, in German, which is the word Rede, which gets tra uh, translated as discourse, but really means talking about things to discuss them all the way to their ground, like trying to see through things. So not just having chit chat, but really trying to investigate and think. And so um, we've been brainstorming different topics to talk about, but for the first couple, um, we've been asking each other questions. So I have um, a question I'm gonna ask Megan that's gonna guide the conversation today. So given that this year has been a year that is involving so much transition and change and disruption, um, not only due to COVID, but I mean, as I'm talking to my friends, I, I mean, so many people in my space are going through transitions. They're contemplating job changes or have undergone or are going through relationship changes or really thinking about questions of purpose and what they want to be doing. It's, it's remarkable. I'm having several conversations a week about this. So given, point is, given the theme of transition, the air of transition, which seems to be all around, I wanted to ask you, Megan, to talk about maybe three moments of transitions, key transitions you have had in your life. What are, what are times that you have gone through transition and 
what were they and how were you affected and how did you navigate them and what did you learn from them? That's my question for you. That's really interesting. Um, I feel like, I feel like everybody's heard the kind of early ones, right? Like, I was studying for my final exams, my first year university, and the only thing I super loved was classics, and that's why I got into classics. Or I met a girl at a zoo, and that's why I went into um, primatology, or I got malaria, and that's why I went into women's studies, and then I got drunk one night, and Pete and I ate too much meat, and I decided I was going to go to... Uh, study chimpanzees you know like I feel like I've got a bunch of stories that that shaped sort of my earlier life but I feel like there's been some I'm gonna say in the last five years Mm. five to seven years that have that have kind of like almost shaken me sort of like ripped me off of the road that I thought I was on kind of um, violently in some cases and put me where I am now. So I'm going to go with those three. In chronological order, because I think the story will make the most sense. And I kicked out. Can you say who did was a was my partner for, I don't know, maybe five years, four years, something like that. When I first moved to back to Squamish, a couple people that are super important in my life, including my mother, in the last six months of our relationship said things like, are you sure that's true? About things they were saying to me. And it culminated, I can't believe I'm gonna share this story on a podcast. It culminated when um, I and I were going to Park Royal to get um, to visit a bank and we got to the bank and ran to the bathroom and I waited for him and he took my car while I was waiting for him outside a bathroom he snuck out and he got my car and he was driving back to our house in Squamish to um, pack up his stuff and leave. So he effectively stole my car and left me at Park Royal Shopping Center by myself. I called my mom and mom said, okay, I'll come and get you. And I called the dog walker because Random and Abstract were out on a dog walk with Kimmy, the greatest dog walker. And um, I kept trying to call Dan while I was standing on the roof of the parking lot um, over by Best Buy. It was something different then. On top of the parking lot in at, at Park Royal, calling over and over, trying to get him to answer the phone so that he would come back and give me my car back. And like not clean out the house. And I realized I went down to my bank because my bank card had been missing and they gave me a new bank card and I discovered that he'd taken money out of my bank account and and essentially was like on the run. 
and um, I he called me and I talked him into coming back and he came back and got me and we drove back to my house in Squamish and um, I moved him into sort of this like downstairs room and um, what, what was that conversation like? Which you want? They were all so... It sounds... It's super funny now. At the time, I was mostly numb and just like... Was it shock? Yeah, so you were with him for, what did you say, like five years? Yeah, like five years. And and this was... When was this? This would be uh, June 2013. Okay, so this is seven years ago. Seven and a half years ago. seven and a half years ago. And so, out of the blue... This is my question. So out of the blue, like, you things are fine, and then he, he, all of a sudden, you're abandoned at Park Royal trying to figure out, and you call him and you say, can you please come back and get me? And he says, you know what? Okay. What, so what, I mean, yeah, right. what's the progression here? And, and were you like, you know what, this is relationships not working, or we need to put, I don't, you know, sort of. Yeah. Can you sort of, I'm interested in sort of how the transition was, and was this, was this something that sort of like, was a shock or was it was it something that was like you know like putting was it sort of the that moment was it the peak of a longer process or yeah um so i so i'll just i'll just give you i don't want to go through the whole story but i'll give you some of the highlights that i found out in retrospect so um some some weird stuff had been happening before and in i'm going to say like february of that year maybe um called me one night he was working a lot and his business wasn't doing well and he called me one night and i'd gotten home from work so i was teaching a block so i'm working you know 10 to 12 days 12 hour days and i got home and i remember i sat down and i was going to grade and called me and said, I'm on the Lionsgate Bridge and I'm thinking about jumping. And I was like, what? Um, so I talked to him and he had walked from his, his office, which was over by Mac on 4th, West 4th, to the Lionsgate Bridge. And so I said, well, keep walking and meet me at Park Royal. And... Um, I'll, I'll come and get you. Like, don't, don't, don't do anything. Like, don't, don't, don't do, don't, don't, just don't. You know, we can, we can figure anything out. We've got this. It's fine. I'll come and get you. And it was pouring rain, I remember. And so I drove down and I got him and I picked him up and um, we talked. We actually sat in like Nando's Chicken in Park Royal and talked. He said that the business wasn't doing well, that some of the people weren't paying him, that it was falling apart. And he had this, this like, believable story, you know. New businesses don't usually succeed, and he went in big. So um, I was like, well, you know, we can figure it out. It's fine. We've been living off my income for, you know, five years. It's fine. So one day, probably in, like, March, I guess, I walked into um, the uh, reception area at Quest, and there was this like super big dude with this shirt, like 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 flak jacket, I think they're called, that said bailiff across it, 
and he walked up to D and he said, is um, John McDonald there? Uh, you'll notice that we beeped out his name in earlier versions because it seems like the right thing to do. And now I'm going to call this person John McDonald. And um, so I, um, I was like, oh, I know who John McDonald is. You know, can I help you? And the guy said, yeah, we're here to repossess his car. And <laughs> I was like, what? There's clearly been a mistake. And that was the car you were driving? And that was the car that I was driving because he was driving my car all the time. So how convenient. I know, right? So I drove so I took this the bailiff up to my office and we called John and um I was like, John, there's a guy here and John's like, Oh, there's been a mistake. I've been paying for it. Maybe I was paying it into the wrong account. Hang on, let me call the bank. And the bailiff's like, I can't actually sit here and wait and I had to go teach a class and then I had to take the dog to the vet later. So there was all this stuff going on. So the bailiff was lovely and let me um, clean the car out and let me keep it for a little bit. But I'll never forget this moment where I'm in a coordinator's meeting in this corner office that's all glass at Quest that looks out over the circle. And I'm like watching the bailiff drive the car up onto the circle and put it onto a tow truck. And Torin is like frantically stopping the guy. And Torin's like, no, 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 you can't take this car. And Torin is? Torin was the, um, I think he was the vice president of operations or something. And uh, Torin's like, like just being lovely and running out and like trying to stop the guy from t from taking my car and he's texting me and I'm like it's okay Torin I'll tell you later come to my office and so there's this like this like moment where I'm just like oh my god I can't believe I'm sitting in a meeting as a professional watching like this my my car my boyfriend's car getting taken away by a bailiff like it feels like it feels like what's his name Dog, the the bounty hunter. It's what's his name? It's like it's like a popular, trashy TV show. It's like, I don't know, like Wolf Dog, the bounty hunter, and it's a dude that like goes places and repossesses stuff and arrests people. And I was just like, how is this my life? Like, how is this my life? So, um, Dan, what was I calling him? John, John, and <laughs> came home and was like, I um. Uh, yeah, I I talked to the Royal Bank and apparently I had two accounts for my car and I was paying into the wrong account. It was actually an account that had been closed. And so I've been paying all the money into an account that was closed. And this account, um, and they were expecting that it would be paid into this other account. And so I've actually been paying it the whole time and the bank's going to take care of it and switch it over, but it's going to take a couple months. And I was like, oh, man, you know, that's terrible. And I told my mom, and my mom was like, really? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, that sounds sketchy. And I was like, no, I'm sure stuff like that happens. <laughs> and so then um, the next thing was a couple months later, I... Um, I went outside, I drove to work, I got to work, I was walking past the back of my car, and um, there were no plates on it. 
And I was like, this is weird. Why are there no plates on my car? So I called the RCMP and I was like, hey, there's no, you know, I, I, no, I didn't. I called ICBC and I was like, hey, um, I think somebody stole my plates. I don't know what to do. And they're like, get somebody to drive you down to our office, report it to the RCMP, uh, the RCMP line. And I was like, okay, no problem. And so I reported it to the RCMP line. And at some point, I was trying to call out. And one of the problems with the Quest phones is that you you needed to dial 9 to call out. And so if you're dialing long distance, frequently we would call 9-1 and then accidentally double hit the 1 button. And we would get put through to 911. And we were told, I can't tell you how many, infor- how many like news flashes we got about don't call 911 and hang up. Stay on the line. Make sure that you talk to the police and let them know it's not an emergency. But when you call 911 accidentally, your first instinct is to hang up. So the day that my plates go missing, I've already had a conversation with the RCMP non-emergency line. And then I call 911 and hang up. And I call back and I'm like, hey, I just want to let you know I'm, um, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. And so I go downstairs and I run into, oh, what was his name? The, the bald security guard at Quest? Um, Sean. Sean. Sean is standing there talking to two RCMP officers. And I walk outside and, and Sean goes, oh, there's, there she is right there. That's Dr. Bulla. And I'm like, why are the RCMP here to see me at work? And um, essentially... They were like, it was super sketchy that I got, that I'd called 911 and hung up and that my plates were missing the same day. And so they were just, it's, this is actually quite lovely. They were just coming to make sure I was okay. And so I'm having this really awkward conversation with them where they're like, are you all right? Are you fleeing anyone? Are you in danger? And I'm like, no, but if I don't get to Darcy's class, to, to like teach my part of Darcy's class in the next five minutes, he's gonna kill me. So there's, so I'm having like these weird things that have never happened in my life, right? Like I've never had my plates stolen. I've never had the police showing up at work to make sure I'm okay. I've never had a car repossessed, you know? Like I've never, like these things have never happened, but in this like window of time, in the spring of 2013, all of this is happening. So it culminates with John and I go to Mac because I'm going along on Darcy's, um, I don't remember what it was called. It was like Mysteries of the Aegean class. It's the first time Darcy um, Otto, one of the faculty members at Quest, is doing this really cool class where we're taking students uh, to Turkey to go to um, the ruins. And so I'm going along because I've got a classics degree and um, they just needed an extra body on the trip. And so, or, and just bleep it out. I'll just bleep it out. And so uh, John and I are at Mac and he, um, I have been supporting the company financially and doing payroll. And so he... What do you mean you've been doing payroll? I've been paying payroll for his company. Because his company's not making money. Because his company's not making money. So you're funding him. I'm basically funding the company. And and my parents have also put money into the company. And so I 
I'm leaving and I need money for this trip. And so he's going to the bank around the corner because it's right near where his office was in order to get me cash. And I wait for him and I wait for him and I wait for him. This is so funny. So this is before the Park Royal instance, but I'm at the top of Mech in the parking lot on West 4th waiting for him for an hour and he doesn't show up. And then I get a phone call from him and he's at um, VGH in the emergency and he says that he's been jumped and somebody stole his phone and stole the money um, that he had, the, the um, uh, cashier's check that he had for me. This was supposed to be a $10,000 cashier's check, by the way. And so uh, he, I go and I pick him up and I'm like, oh my goodness, like what happened? And he's like, yeah, the police. And I had to talk to the police and they hit me on the head, but it seems like I'm okay. And, you know, my phone, I got my phone back and his phone's like the, the cover shattered. And he's like, but they took the money and I'm not going to be able to get the money back. And I'm like, well, cancel the cashier's check. Like, that's why you get that. And he's like, oh, I didn't get a cashier's check. I ended up just getting it in cash. And I was like, I don't, like, do they give you, like, if you go into a bank, do they give you $10,000 in cash? I don't know. In a little, in a little bag. In a little bag, the, right? In, in, like a, in like an old briefcase handcuffed to your arm. And I'm just like, this is, and I was like, well, what are we going to, like, what are we going to do? So um, we go home, and I'm leaving for Turkey for a month the next day. And I just don't have, like, I don't have space for any of this at the time. John drops me off at, so the next day, I, like, cobble together some money for the trip. John drops me off at, um, at the airport, and I, I get to the gate, and I'm calling him to say, like, he's got my car, and he's taking care of the dogs, and he's in my house. And I, so I call him to say, you know, bye, have a good trip, you know, take care. And um, I can't get a hold of him. And he's not answering his texts. His phone's not, he's not answering his phone. And he said he was going to, oh, I remember why I was calling. He said he was going to the police to do an interview. And he might be able to find out then if um, he could get the money back. And so I'm calling him to try to, you know, before my plane boards. And I can't get a hold of him. I can't get a hold of him. But I remember he's told me the name of the cop. So I go through the Vancouver Police Directory and I call the police officer and just say, hey, I just, you know, I just, I'm trying to get a hold of my partner and I just wanted to, you know, and I knew he was in seeing you and I just wanted to make sure everything was okay. And, um, I talked to my mom and my mom, my mom was so awesome. My mom's just like, Meg, go away, like bracket this, like set a hard boundary here and go to Turkey and forget about everything that happens here and just go and love what you're doing and love Turkey and just go. And I was like, okay. And so just as I'm about to get on the flight, I see I have a voicemail, and the voicemail is from the police officer saying he has no idea what I'm talking about and who I'm talking about. And then I get a text from John saying, bye, have a great trip, I just got back, you know, I've got a lot of things to say, but i got to get on a plane because I'm flying out. So I did what my mom said, and I had 
very little contact with him while I was away. And I come home and then like, and, and so, so those are the sorts of things that have happened before. So there's nothing that's happened before that I'm not, um, that's, that, that I can't explain away, okay? I forgot to finish the story. My plates weren't stolen. They were repossessed by ICBC because John hadn't actually paid our insurance. So I, at one point, I'm in front of the counter of, the, of our insurance agent and I'm on the phone with John and he's saying, I'm on the phone with an ICB agent right now, and the ICB agent says, or ICBC agent says that I've paid it, and this is the confirmation number. And I'm giving the confirmation number to the agent in front of me, and she's like, that's not an ICBC confirmation number. And John's getting angry, and he's like, well, I'm talking to the person on the phone. I don't know why this is a problem. And I'm in front of the person, and finally, I was like, okay, you know what? I will talk to you when I get home, John. And I looked at the woman, and I'm like, what do I have to do to get my plates back? Because, like, like I, I can clearly pay for my insurance. <laughs> like, this isn't, this is, like, it's not that I, I can't pay for my insurance or that I'm not paying, you know, like, it's not a money thing. It's a, you know, John is clearly not doing things thing. So those things are happening. Other people are saying, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah, like he's just having a run of bad luck. And, and in the back of my head, I also have this, you know, I also have the memory of him calling me from the Lionsgate Bridge. And I'm like, yeah, like he's got, he's having a tough time now. And by the way, I'm a psychologist and I care about people who have, you know, tough times and who have mental illness and who have whatever. So fast forward to what I started with. We're on the top of Park Royal. I say, I need you to come back. We can work this out. I used almost exactly the same language I used, whatever it would be, five months earlier when I was like, meet me at Park Royal. We can figure this out. Don't jump off Lionsgate Bridge. And so he gets in the car. I took away his car. His <laughs> I took away the keys. Um, and then I just yelled, basically, on the drive up to Squamish. Like, I, I essentially just yelled on the drive from Park Royal to Squamish. And then I made things happen so that he would move out. And, but it was, it was incredibly difficult for me because I had this moment where I was like, am I, am I kicking somebody who is struggling with mental illness out of my home? And... Isn't, isn't what partners do to support each other through sickness and in health? And isn't my role here, especially as, you know, I'm not a clinical psychologist, and I also, you know, believe in mental health resources, isn't my role here to help him and support him and find ways that we can access health care and all of these things. And um, so I'm like, I'm, I'm faced with this, this like time of 
you know, our relationship, like, our relationship was not great before it started to fall apart in January of 2013. But it wasn't terrible, right? I am super fulfilled and loving my professional life. I'm in this place of who do I choose? Do I choose myself and say, you know what? You go home to your mom and you sort your shit out because that is not my role. That's what you'd say to him, not yourself. No, 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 to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or do I say, you know what, we're going to make this work and I'm going to find the resources and there's a way we can do this. And I had two conversations with two of my closest friends and they were so... um, they were putting me before everything. And I don't think that had ever happened before in my life. And these two friends were just like, nope, you, um, you, you, need to, you need to worry about you right now. Your role is not to fix this. You, your role is to, to like protect yourself right now. And Kathleen and Marjorie were just were just like these are the two friends. Yeah, these are the two friends. Were just like these angels that sort of swooped in and were like, nope, this is you know, and also and also from afar, um, Rachel, the three of them were just like, okay, let's you know, let's figure this out. And they did it in these really subtle ways, and in these really beautiful ways that were all of them. And I don't. Like, they clearly weren't working in concert, but they were essentially, like, like giving me bits of myself back to remind me and being there when hard things were happening and ensuring that I was, like, I knew, I knew what, I, what had to happen. Like, it was just, it was remarkable. And my mom and my dad and Gloria were just like, well, you know what? <sighs> What my dad used to, whenever I broke up with somebody, my dad would say, yep, you turned him into cash. That was the right thing to do with that one. You turned him into cash. And so, (laughs) and, but that was like that, the, that, that, that moment was this moment where I was finally putting myself above other people's needs and also, um, not martyring myself to something else. Mm. And you know, it went on for another year after that, like, and it was... You mean what? Uh, John's behavior before I finally got him, like, completely, like... How long was he still in the house? Oh, he was only in the house for another, um, he was only in the house for another two weeks. He, oh. I found out later he was, like, pretending to go to work, and okay. so I was, like, driving him to Horseshoe Bay every day, and he was pretending to go to work, and then <laughs> I was picking him up in Horseshoe Bay, and so I ended up paying the damage deposit on an apartment in Vancouver just to get him out of the house. And I got a phone call 30 days later from the landlord saying, um, are you going to pay the rent? And I started laughing and I told her the story and she was like, ah, okay. So I don't know what happened. I suspect that he was, I suspect he was seeing another woman in there as well. I suspect that he was, um, uh, probably like had somewhere soft to land. Um, 
And I don't, I don't ever know what happened. I don't know where he is. I don't know. I know nothing about his life. And um, and now it's it feels almost like a cautionary tale, mm. as opposed to a part of my life. Like that's just that's that whole part's just so done. So yeah. So there's one. So with the what what would you say is the major learning from that mm. transition? So the major learning for me from that transition, there were a couple. One was. For God's sakes, trust your instincts because I I knew that some, some part of me knew that I was being manipulated and used and lied to. The second one is a little bit, um, I feel a little bit of shame around this one. And it's that it doesn't matter if, you ha- if you're a professional and if you're intelligent and if you have a really well put together life. You too can be manipulated by a sociopath, right? Like, it's not like these sorts of things, like bailiffs coming for cars and, you know, ICBC taking your plates. Like that kind of stuff can happen to anybody. And I got, um, I got a tattoo that December to remind me to make different mistakes. And I was talking to my awesome tattoo artist, Steve at Ashlar Tattoos. What do you mean make different mistakes? Well, I've I've made that I've made the boy mistake a couple times. Oh, don't right? make the same mistake. Don't make the same again. mistake. Like make different mistakes. Don't, oh, don't keep making it. the same mistakes. Funnily enough, I made the boy mistake again, which is gonna lead to my second one. Um, I'm right here, Megan. <laughs> It's not me. It's not you me. laughed, but you didn't clarify. <laughs> Let me clarify. Brian is not the second boy mistake. Um, I'm, any, I'm a different mistake. <laughs> you're not a mistake. You're a growing opportunity. <laughs> you're hilarious. So, um, so it, what was interesting for me is that as I was telling Steve about this story while he was doing my Alabrije tattoo, he... He, like, popped out, like, four or five people who were in similar situations to me in the last four or five years who were, you know, uh, like, successful lawyers. And, and, and I went through a period where I kept meeting these women who were getting fucked over by these men who were manipulating them taking their money, lying, lying, taking their self-confidence, isolating them, you know, being uh, like, um, John would get really angry when I was doing stuff at Quest or when I was out with my friends because it wasn't attention put on him. And so it was really interesting to me how many women in that time period I bumped into who were going through um, pretty similar situations. Were they always women? They were getting, always women. I've never, ma- yeah, never, by yeah, I've never, I've never heard a story of a man being manipulated like that by Got a woman. Uh, okay. Okay. So the second one. Second, what was your prompt again? Best, best life no, mom- experiences, wh- obviously. No, moments of transition ah. that you've gone through. Key moments of transition and what you've learned from them. Okay. So I learned from that one. Okay. So this is where the shame comes in. Is that I sort of thought that having a PhD and owning a house and being from a middle class family would somehow insulate me from 
those kind of experiences. Ostensibly, you wouldn't have a, any dysfunction in your adulthood. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Welcome to the 1950s Betty Crocker lessons. Third one was also to pick myself. The third one. The, the third, third learning. Okay. The third lesson from that is to pick myself. Right. So my second, um, my second one occurred um, in the summer of 2015. And also, you know, similar, like, similar trajectory with another kind of psychologically damaging Tamegan relationship. But what I got out of it was so much more worth it than anything else. So I am, um, I'm going to say my next transition was when I uh, rode my bike around the southwest of the United States in May and June of 2015. And basically, we rode our bikes and camped. Who's we? Uh, me and Elijah. Rick? You and Rick? <laughs> me and Elijah. Um, and, you know, I think we, I, I, I kind of feel like, like, I feel like he was mad at me or, like, upset at me or, you know, I did, hang on, I, I'll tell you in a sec, or I did something uh, every day on that trip. At the end of it, what I remember is this, like, deep sense of my ability to do fucking anything. And also I had some profoundly sacred moments. So the context is I was dating this guy. He said I, um, I was sent a dream when I was young to go. And he grew up in, um, on Navajo land. And he said I was sent a dream. That he was sent a dream? Or yeah. you were sent no, a dream? No, he was sent a dream. He's saying all of this. He grew up on Navajo land. He says, I was sent a dream uh, to go and um, walk or like some way that is not mechanically driving, go around the four sacred peaks of Navajo land. And the four sacred peaks of Navajo land are Blanca, which is outside of Alamosa in Colorado. San Francisco Peak, I think it's called. No, Grants, which is just outside of... Um, Durango, right? No, 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 no. no. Uh, just outside of... Um, it's in Arizona. Oh, sorry. It's... Oh, I can't remember. It's... Um, I, think it's I think it's just outside of a place called Grant. What's the song... Let's just put a link okay. to Four Sacred Peaks. I will put a link to Four Sacred Peaks. The other one is just outside of Flag, and then the other one is um, uh, Hes Hesperides. Hesperides? Just outside of Durango. That's the one. Oh, the north okay. one. The That's Black the Mountains outside. outside of Durango. So oh. it's, um, it's a hell of a bike ride. I hadn't ridden a bike probably since I was a child. I had never ridden clipless pedals. I had never um, ridden my bike for eight to ten hours a day. For how many days? For, I think we ended up going, I think it was 21, but we took a couple long, like wow. three-day rest periods. The first, no, the third day we went over Wolf Creek Pass in Colorado. Goodness. I've driven over we that drove thing. over yeah. it a couple of months ago, which is like straight up and straight down. I think it's something like six thousand feet 
in um, two miles. In elevation gain? Yes, yeah, 6,000 really feet elevation pass, gain yeah. in something like two. It was, it was horrible. You I go over I the divide. Die. Yeah. I was ter- I, I thought I was going to die. It was my third day. And it's not like I trained for any of this. Like, I basically I jumped on a bike with a bunch of stuff, and I was like, okay, here we go. And we were camping most of the time, so we were like pulling our bikes off the road and walking 20 feet into the desert and camping. Um, but it was, it was just such a magical adventure. And that land lives, it's like, it's interesting. In Chinese med right now, we're learning microcosm, macrocosms. So it's the idea that the cosmos of the world tells you information about the world. So like the landscape or the, the clock time, or the, um, the sort of like big macrocosms, the constellations in the sky, the seasons, all have a particular energy with them. And you shrink it down into a microcosm and you like stick it on somebody's eye, or you stick it on their abdomen, or you stick it on their tongue. You like the picture of it? Yeah, like the map of it. And yeah. then you are able to tell things about somebody, like where to needle people or um, about like where the energy should be falling or where the energy should be rising. Or if people have pain in a certain place, it relates to a certain, it's a certain season. Anyway, it's, it's incredibly complex. In fact, one of my, one of my teachers said that um, the simplest and most complex problem or philosophy in um, East Asian medicine is yin-yang. And everybody thinks they know what yin-yang is, right? Oh, it's the feminine and the masculine, the dark and the light. And they can make lists of the correspondences. But this, um, his old teacher, he asked his old teacher what he was reading. And he said, I'm reading about yin-yang because it is the hardest thing to Mm -hmm. understand. And I was like, isn't that brilliant? Well, there, I actually think that relates to, like, math. The simplest and the hardest things about math is math is fundamentally about number and shape. Um, but reconciling those two things together, number are discrete things that you can, you know, kind of list or separate, and, and shape is continuous. And it's those two, like the continuous line, Oh, and then you pluck it out and you get infinity. <laughs> I told you Trying to reconcile how to use those two tools together is like all the deep conundrums of math. Calculus is that is trying to reconcile those two things. Set theory is trying to reconcile those two things. Um, and so in some ways, it's like the simplest constructs also, also house the, the, the most the thorniest and most complicated problems. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly. Um, so why did I say that? Oh, I said all of that because the landscape of that land lives as a macrocosm for mm-hmm. me to understand things about my life, about my spiritual practices. I can see it coming up in the shaman work I do. I can see it coming up like really strongly. Um, I feel like I got my soul back on that trip. Like, I went into that trip a pretty strong atheist, rationalist, there's nothing but what we see, and I had some experiences um, on that trip that 
I would say gave me my soul and my deep belief in the mystical back. Hmm. And as I was leaving, I, um, I had a couple uh, dreams about uh, Chris Selda. She kept coming up for me and coming up This is a friend of yours. This is a friend of mine. Um, she kept coming up for me and coming up for me. And um, Chris Selda does work. Um, she's a shaman, and she does a lot of energy work. And she is uh, perhaps one of the most authentic and heart-forward um, gurus that I've ever encountered. And I'm really honored that she's my teacher. And Chris, um, I called Chris, and I said, you keep coming up for me, and I think, I think I need to sit down with you. And Chris said, this is so weird, I was dreaming about you the other day. And we worked it out that it was almost overlapping in time. And so that was how I started my training to be a shaman, was um, from that trip, on the way home from that trip. So what got birthed from that trip was this, like, belief in my own ability to do anything which I'd mm. lost really desperately lost as well as my new path as a healer so yeah what's your what's your on which fully I'm now on fully now yeah I'm so grateful for that trip for all the like right. weirdness that happened on it I'm so grateful for that trip and then the third one is um, my dad's death last uh the first of october 2019 uh first of august august sorry august um yeah i um i knew that dad was having problems um but my stepmom gloria was dealing with bigger health problems and i uh she called me i actually this is tied up so intrinsically i quit my job as the Chief Institutional Culture Innovation and Assessment Officer at Fulbright University, Vietnam. And I, um, that's such a power suit title, like an 80s power suit title. Mm. Anyway, I, um, I had quit my job. My last day of work was on the Friday. And uh, Gloria called me on Sunday and said, so that Sunday. And to be clear, Gloria is your stepmom. Gloria is my stepmom. Uh, and said, can you come? Your dad's asking for you, and he's not doing very well. And I, um, I hemmed and hawed about it for a little bit because I was set up to do some consulting work with one of the international schools in Vietnam and in Saigon. And I was set up to teach a bunch of yoga classes. And I thought this was like going to be my new path, was I was going to consult and teach yoga. I was worried about those, um, about, about losing them. And you said, what will you regret more? And I was like, oh, right, of course. So I booked my ticket, and I got the earliest flight I could get out, which was on the Friday. So it was... I left, I think, I, what would that be? I left Thursday, Vietnam time? Is that how it works? I can't remember. Vietnam's ahead. You would you, you could fly back on the same day. Okay, so I left Friday. And got back Friday. Yeah, so I left Friday morning. And, and um, 
I, I, I landed at the Vancouver airport and I called Gloria and she said dad had been taken to the hospital that morning. And I, um, WestJet fucked up my flight. <laughs> and so I was later getting in than I meant to be. And Gloria's dear friend, Teresa, picked me up at the airport and took me to the hospital directly. And I got there and dad was in this room in the hospital in the ER and he had... Um, in the ICU? No, in the ER. In the ER. Yeah, in he the was ER. in the emergency room. Yeah, he was in the emergency room for two days. He never went into the ICU. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it was like, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like the news things where there's like a bed, like a gurney up against the wall. Like he had a, he had curtains around him, but uh-huh. he, was, he was in this dark room with curtains. And, um, okay. yeah, and he didn't have any machines hooked up to him. Mm. And so I went in and I couldn't get anybody. And like, I've now been traveling for whatever it is, 20 hours. And I couldn't get anyone to explain to me why there were no machines hooked up to him. And I couldn't get anybody to tell me what was happening. I couldn't, like, I couldn't figure out what was going on. And... Gloria's sister had been in to the hospital and they told Gloria's sister and Gloria was going to see or she was going to see Gloria because Gloria had just gotten out of an operation and couldn't be there and I was there and I'm like and finally I just did the bulla thing that I learned from dad and I just walked up to somebody and got mad <laughs> and said look I just got off a plane from Vietnam to see my dad I'm standing here nobody's telling me what's happening I see him in a room with nothing hooked up to him. Nobody will tell me what's wrong with him. I need somebody to talk to me now. And I'm like, if you're, if you're not talking to me because you're afraid of how I'm going to react, don't be. I'm fine, but I need you to give me information now. And the nurse said, um, I can't, but let me get the doctor. And apparently they wanted the attending physician to talk to me. And in retrospect, I realized... Um, what they were, what they wanted to tell me was that he was going to die imminently. But none of them wanted to be the person who did it. So, so they kept passing it up the ranks. So they kept passing it, and finally, this man, um, I, I finally, I said, look, just leave his chart open, and I will take a look at his chart. Like surely, um, you know, I'm, I'm the one that's uh, that has all the legal decision making power about his health at this point. So I'm the person you need to be talking to. Mm. And um, I, he finally said that they were looking for... So this is, this is... They finally said they were looking for a bed for him to go into hospice care. Mm. And that he was now in palliative care. Mm. And at that point in my life, I didn't know what either of those words really meant. Oh. And the people that I know who'd gone into hospice care, I sort of thought hospice care and palliative care were the same thing, which they're not. And the people that I knew who had been in hospice care, some of them were in there for like a month. Like, I felt like we, you know, I was like, okay. Like this, I thought I was going home to get him into a nursing home because his health had been deteriorating and his cognition had been deteriorating. So I thought that I was, like, going in to, like, take charge and get him into a home. And, like, that was what I was showing up to do. And so I, at that point, I still sort of thought that's what I was showing up to do. Wow. 
So I was like, okay, so not a home, a hospice. I can, I can do this. And um, I don't remember if it was that doctor or if it was when I went back the first thing in the morning. Um, but one of the doctors in those first two days was like, he's got, like his, his liver is basically tumors. Well, there's a shadow in his esophagus that we think could be cancer. And there's an enormous clot at the bottom of his liver going into his stomach that's, that's blocking, essentially, his stomach processes. And any one of those things alone would probably be terminal. And I remember looking at her, and I'm like, okay, so I understand why we're not doing anything. But when you go in a hospital, like, the first thing they do is, like, take your blood pressure and hook you up to a blood pressure machine and hook you up to a oxygenator thingy, you know, the thing on your finger that tells your blood oxygen level. And there's always machines beeping in hospitals. And it was silent. And it was actually the nurse who was like, yeah, well, it's silent because we're not, we're not doing anything. I was like, I don't understand what that means. And she's like, well, there's nothing we can do. So we're not, like, he's, he's about to die. And I was like, oh, fuck, my dad's about to die. And so it was, it was good because he was awake enough that I could talk to him. And um, he was awake enough over, what would that be? That was Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Monday, he was awake enough that when I was there, he knew I was there. And um, we had conversations a little bit, nothing, you know, profound. Um, but, yeah. Um, and so they, I, I, I realized later, they were trying to decide. They, they didn't... So, so they said they couldn't move him into hospice over the weekend because there's a process. And what I think they actually expected was that he, he would, would die, die on the weekend. Yeah. But nobody, like, in, it, like, this is all, in retrospect, I'm putting it together because at the time I didn't know what any of it was. And so, um, yeah, I spent a week uh, and Dad was in a room and they, they didn't have any single rooms, so he was in a shared room. And so there was this woman on the other side of the room who I, in a very erratic way, loved and hated. <laughs> um, she complained the whole time. And, but she had a dog that would come and visit her. Dad sat on the other side gasping for breath. And what they do in hospice care, or in palliative care, is um, they, they put this laminated picture of a butterfly and they pin it to the screen, to the, to the screening curtain, and that's how you know that the person in that room is dying. Jeez. It's horrible. It's so horrible. So, um, and dad's, um, dad's comfort was dictated by, like, how old the nurse was. So... Luckily, kind of Tuesday, Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the nurse on his floor was a palliative care hospice care nurse. And she came in and sat down and talked to me and said, 
what do you want? Do you want him mm-hmm. to be alert as possible so you can spend time with him and say, you know, whatever you need to say? Or do you want him to be as comfortable as possible? And I was like, I've said everything I need to say. Like, I don't, you know, I want, I want years with my dad. I don't want, you know, 15 minutes of, of cognitive ability. I want my dad for years and I can't have that. So let's make him as comfortable as possible. And um, so that nurse, I have no idea what her name was anymore, but she was just a godsend. So she came in and just like on schedule, kept him like morphine. And I feel like... Was she the older nurse? You said it came down she to was the age older, of the nurse. But then some of the like... 25 year old nurses were just a shit show um just like they just don't know right and they're not you know like i i feel like there's a lot of people that you know you know how there's a lot of teachers that are just teachers because they didn't know what else to do mm-hmm. and i think there's a lot of nurses that are just nurses because they didn't know what else to do i sat in the room and um i sat with dad his breathing changed after that and um, he, he never woke up again. And then um, I was on the phone with you the next day because you were still in Vietnam. And we were on the phone and we were talking about life. Um, and uh, I, I remember saying to you, I feel like I should get back to the room. And uh, yeah. I got back to the room and I sat down and I started reading again. Something, something happened, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And then I realized that his breathing was ending. And so there was, if, you, if you're in a room with somebody and you feel their breathing, you feel their breath, and when it changes dramatically, it takes a little while to figure out what that noise is. And it was that there was space between his breaths. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of, once I figured out what was happening, I sat down on the bed and just held him. And uh, he breathed a couple more times and then he died. And I was filled with this like, just like the profundity of death, Mm. right? Like death is important. And it's important, like, birth is important. And um, mm-hmm. and then I stayed for, I think, a couple more days. And then I got back to Vietnam. And it was like, there was August looming out in front of me. And I had no idea, like, how you grieve and... You know, and I was so um, adrift from the traditions, right? Like, nobody was bringing over casseroles, and no, none of my people were there for me to sit with and tell stories about dad or visit. Or, you know, like, there was no, there was no grieving space, right? So I had all of this vast space of grieving on my own, but I didn't have the community of grieving that you would get if I were, you know, in North America. And so as I sat in that space, 
shortly after that was around the time that I decided that I was going to go into classical Chinese medicine. This event was sort of the big driver of it, mm. was I want to do hospice care, and I want to do addiction support, and I want to, I want to find a way to mm. make this process different for people so that other people aren't sitting, watching their loved ones on the side of a blue curtain with a fucking blue butterfly on it. And instead, we're actually honoring what death means. And so one of the things that I have been doing is I'm reading a book called Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End by Atul Gawande. So the book, everyone should read this book. It's called Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End. And it's about what we do at the end of our lives. It's about nursing homes, it's about care, it's about palliative care. You sent me a TED Talk by B.J. Miller about his work with the Zen uh, Project. There's a fellow named Frank, oh God, it's like Otaskitakaki, who's written another book on death. And this one, Atal Gawande's, are sort of the three big um, books on um, end of life. I think this is one of the reasons why I want a mobile clinic is so that I can go to people so they can be in their homes more, so they can be with their loved ones more, and I can go to them and give them the care instead of them having to go to me to get the care or them being in a hospice or in a nursing home or in a place. Mm -hmm. So this book, um, essentially what Dr. Gawande is doing is he's like he's trying to figure out what makes life worth living. As children with aging parents, we want our parents to be safe. We don't want our parents to fall. We want to make sure our parents have enough food. We want to make sure they're eating well. We want to make sure they're not burning the house down because they leave the kettle on. You know, like there's there's things that that the children of aging parents worry about for their parents. Nobody ever asks the parents what they want when they go into nursing homes or palliative care or hospice. His argument is it's not safety. Mm. Like, actually, can you, can you imagine either of our mothers being like, I just want to be safe? So the idea is you give up autonomy in order to be safe. No. And yeah, if there's two women I know who, do, who who want autonomy and will take autonomy over safety, it's those two. So he does all this work, and what he comes out with is a quote I'm going to read. The battle of being mortal is the battle to maintain the integrity of one's life, to avoid becoming so diminished or dissipated or subjugated that who you are becomes disconnected from who you were or who you want to be. Mm. And I feel like that's everything. That's profound, yeah. Right? Like, that's everything. I, um, yeah, I, I would argue that's sort of the battle cry of feminism and the Black Lives Movement and trans rights and, uh, workers' rights Mm. and all of it. And I heard something more personal on that, which is, you know, like what we're talking about with transitions, uh, you know, some, they're the hardships that sort of test 
this sense of personal dignity in some way and, and, and like, you know, connecting with who we were or who we want to be in some way. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't hear that when I read The death of a parent hits, hits you. I can only imagine the death of a child or the death of a partner and the death of a parent, I think, are the three. Let's see. For me, dad's death hit me on a lot of way more personal ways. But sort of to follow the chain, the first example of the terrible relationship falling apart and being manipulated and used taught me to trust myself and to privilege my intuition and my ability and myself over what I thought I should be doing in the world. The second one, the bike trip, taught me that I could do hard things. And not just do hard things, right? Like getting a PhD is hard, but I knew I could do it. Do hard things that you don't know you could do. I didn't know I could ride a bike through and like live outside for 21 days, right? That, so knowing that you can do hard things that you don't know that you can do. And also it gave me my soul and my spirit back in a way that I don't know how else I would have found it again which then took me to my dad's death, which was in some ways the final kind of enormous kick in the ass where I had to step into the seat of a healer in order that this is something that I can minimize other people's um, experiences, traumatic experiences of. And also, um, it also, yeah, it also really pushed me down the the question of like of mortality and what it means to be alive and what it means to die and I have to say like my first reaction was like I don't I don't want my dad to die I don't want to die there's got to be a way out like there's got to be a way like that I can I can make this not happen and I still do that right we've lost some um we've lost uh one of our heart people in the last couple weeks and that's I sort of feel that like no I don't know. I don't want that. So a lot of the work that I'm, a lot of the sort of outside of school work that I'm doing right now is really um, about how do you, how do you help people maintain dignity? And, and the addiction piece, we'll probably talk about that in a different podcast, but the addiction piece and helping people with addiction and helping people with, um, you know, psych, psych stuff to be supported where they are as opposed to making them who the medical profession thinks they should be. Those are all, those are all the direction I'm going. And this quote that I'm going to read again is, um, I, think, I think this is sort of my Arjuna's arrow, like what I'm focusing on right now. The battle of being mortal is the battle to maintain the integrity of one's life. To avoid becoming so diminished or dissipated or subjugated that who you are becomes disconnected from who you were or who you want to be. Mm. Well, I have two things to say. Number one is, you know, I'm reading Heidegger's Being in Time. It's two divisions. And... uh, you know, two two divisions. Each of those chapters in it, and you know what the second division is about? Uh, integrity of one's life. Death. Oh wow! Well, of course, being in time, not being no more time. Yeah, it's about death. Um, 
second thing is, it's interesting because um, hearing how you talk about these moments of transition, and I, I was talking to a friend just last night, um, actually my former, my, my college roommate, um, and we were talking, and, and um, it's, it's one of these things about like making sense of your life, that quote, the integrity of your life. And, you know, we live life in these little moments of it. We don't ever step out of our own life. Like, we're, in, we're always in these little moments of it, right? But every so often, if we bring, we look at it and, and think about how some of those moments gather, um, it can be really profound and to look backwards mm. and, and look at how the trail of transitions is actually part of this, like, larger direction um, I think is a really remarkable thing and it's you know so we, when we go through these experiences often you know you go through them and they're, they're they have their lessons and they have their pain um, and we, we you know yeah and the way we talk about those experiences um, it changes over time like as we make sense of it right and so we explain things one way but then we, ex we can explain it in a different way but it's really interesting because if you look back there's always this coherence um, and, and the coherence is I think it's that integrity that you're talking about, in that, that that quote's talking about. And that coherence is hard. I don't think that we're aware of it unless we sort of stop and reflect and look at these transitions and, and see how they line up. You know, and we were, my college roommate and I were referencing Steve Jobs' quote from the, his graduation speech in whenever, 2005 when he says, you can't connect the dots looking forward you can only connect them looking back mm. and he talks about sort of these serendipitous moments in his life when he indulged in a whim or he underwent a tragedy and in looking back it all linked yes, together yes. and it all made sense about how it led him to where he was but there was no way that he could have from the point in the past looked forward and thought about those dots you know everything had changed and evolved so transition is like this really critical part of a person's, of, you know, of our existence and going through these moments. And they're pretty intense to go through. I mean, human beings, I find, don't necessarily embrace transitions mm. readily. But then looking back, they can be such valuable lenses for understanding ourselves in bigger contexts, bigger ways. When I was writing my teaching philosophy and my materials to apply for Quest, because I had to make sense of the fact mm. that I've got a classics degree, a psychology honors degree. I did, you know, part of a master's in primatology. I did a master's in women's studies. I did a PhD in cognitive psychology. Like, what? Or comparative psychology. Like, what? How do you, how on earth do you make sense of that? And so, but it was super clear as soon as I, I was forced to sit down. And maybe this is a good task for people is to like sit down and make sense of your life, like write the, write the storyline of some of your choices. Mm -hmm. Because I found that doing that, I was like, oh, of course, my question is, what does it mean to be a human being? And you saw the coherence. It was total coherence. That's, see, yeah, that's so like total coherence. It? And it's also interesting to me, I, ne I wouldn't necessarily have, I just kind of, when you asked me that question, I just kind of chose the sort of three most emotionally profound things. Yeah. Right? Because like, there's other decisions, right? Like, I decided to just go to Africa for my 45th birthday ahead of everybody. You decided to get married. I decided to get married, right? Like, our, we're coming up December 7th on five years of the universe speaking through my mouth. 
and um, in order, you know, to start our relationship. And, like, I don't, you know, like, <laughs> Ryan's laughing. I, um, the, the super short story, we'll talk about this more, is um, December 7th, 2015. Megan said, I think we should get married out of the blue. Out of the blue on a phone conversation. She blurted our relationship into existence. It blurted it into, <laughs> into existence, and now, five years later, we're married, and uh, we're on our fourth house that we've lived in together, and our third different um, iterations of ourselves. And our second podcast episode. And our second podcast episode. Um, anyway, we'll talk about that in a different episode, but yeah. So I, um, I just sort of picked, I didn't pick necessarily the biggest transition moments that are obvious transition moments, right? Like, like resume transition moments. I left this job and started this yeah, new job. Like I left this location. I got married. Location. I had a foster kid in the middle of yeah, all of this. Right. Like I didn't, I didn't do those. I did the ones that were the most emotionally hurtful, right? Those were the ones I chose. Interesting. Yeah. So there's, a, there's something useful to do for our listeners is reflect on your moments of transition and what's the coherence that emerges from the picture because it often is surprising yeah and and the reason that we're talking through these things I don't I still don't know how comfortable I feel sharing all of those stories but that's that's vulnerability and authenticity right and so I think what I want to plug for here is that it's a really different experience to sit down with somebody and have the conversation about the profound experiences rather than like sitting down by yourself by a river writing in your diary right like I really want to plug that you get a different experience having the conversation and it being vulnerable and engaging with somebody while you're having the conversation maybe we'll do that with some more people on our podcast ask them about moments of transition to join us in conversation that would be really cool great Okay. Okay. So I just wanted to end saying thank you for joining us for another authentic conversation. Um, and please, if you're interested in being a guest on one of our, and sitting down and chatting with me and Ryan for an hour about um, your life, please send us an email to dearauthenticconversations at gmail.com.